Chapter 4.1 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The 9-11 Commission Report. Chapter 4.1. Before the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. Although the 1995 National Intelligence Estimate had warned of a new type of terrorism, many officials continued to think of terrorists as agents of states, Saudia Hezbollah acting for Iran against Cobra Towers, or as domestic criminals, Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. As we pointed out in Chapter 3, the White House is not a natural locus for program management. Hence, government efforts to cope with terrorism were essentially the work of individual agencies. President Bill Clinton's Counterterrorism Presidential Decision Directives in 1995 and May 1998 reiterated that terrorism was a national security problem, not just a law enforcement issue. They reinforced the authority of the National Security Council NSC, to coordinate domestic as well as foreign counterterrorism efforts through Richard Clark and his Intelligence Counterterrorism Security Group. Spotlighting new concerns about unconventional attacks, these directives assigned tasks to lead agencies but did not differentiate types of terrorist threats. Thus, while Clark might prod or push agencies to act, what actually happened was usually decided at the State Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, or the Justice Department. The efforts of these agencies were sometimes energetic and sometimes effective. Terrorist plots were disrupted and individual terrorists were captured, but the United States did not, before 9-11, adopt as a clear strategic objective the elimination of Al-Qaeda. Early Efforts Against Bin Laden Until 1996, hardly anyone in the U.S. government understood that Osama bin Laden was an inspirer and organizer of the new terrorism. In 1993, the CIA noted that he had paid for the training of some Egyptian terrorists in Sudan. The State Department detected his money in aid to Yemeni terrorists who set a bomb in an attempt to kill U.S. troops and aided in 1992. State Department sources even saw suspicious links with Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind sheik in the New York area, commenting that bin Laden seemed, quote, committed to financing jihads against anti-Islamic regimes worldwide, unquote. After the department designated Sudan a state sponsor of terrorism in 1993, it put bin Laden on its tip-off watch list, a move that might have prevented his getting a visa had he tried to enter the United States. As late as 1997, however, even the CIA's counter-terrorist center continued to describe him as an, quote, extremist financier, unquote. In 1996, the CIA set up a special unit of a dozen officers to analyze intelligence on and plan operations against bin Laden. David Cohen, the head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, wanted to test the idea of having a, quote, virtual station, unquote, a station based at headquarters, but collecting and operating against a subject much as stations in the field focus on a country. Taking his cue from National Security Advisor Anthony Lake, who expressed a special interest in terrorist finance, Cohen formed his virtual station as a terrorist financial links unit. He had trouble getting any directorate of operations officer to run it. He finally recruited a former analyst who was then running the Islamic extremist branch of the counter-terrorist center, 
This officer, who was especially knowledgeable about Afghanistan, had noticed a recent stream of reports about bin Laden and something called Al-Qaeda, and suggested to Cohen that the station focus on this one individual. Cohen agreed. Thus was born the bin Laden unit. In May 1996, bin Laden left Sudan for Afghanistan. A few months later, as the bin Laden unit was gearing up, Jamal Ahmed al-Fadl walked into a U.S. embassy in Africa, established his bona fides as a former senior employee of bin Laden, and provided a major breakthrough of intelligence on the creation, character, direction, and intentions of al-Qaeda. Corroborating evidence came from another walk-in source at a different U.S. embassy. More confirmation was supplied later that year by intelligence and other sources, including material gathered by FBI agents and Kenyan police from an al-Qaeda cell in Nairobi. By 1997, officers in the bin Laden unit recognized that bin Laden was more than just a financier. They learned that al-Qaeda had a military committee that was planning operations against U.S. interests worldwide, and was actively trying to obtain nuclear material. Analysts assigned to the station looked at the information it had gathered and, quote, found connections everywhere, unquote, including links to the attacks on U.S. troops in Aden and Somalia in 1992 and 1993, and to the Manila air plot in the Philippines in 1994 through 1995. The bin Laden station was already working on plans for offensive operations against bin Laden. These plans were directed at both physical assets and sources of finance. In the end, plans to identify and attack bin Laden's money sources did not go forward. In late 1995, when bin Laden was still in Sudan, the State Department and the CIA learned that the Sudanese officials were discussing with the Saudi government the possibility of expelling bin Laden. U.S. Ambassador Timothy Carney encouraged the Sudanese to pursue this course. The Saudis, however, did not want bin Laden, giving it the reason their revocation of his citizenship. Sudan's Minister of Defense, Fatih Arwa, has claimed that Sudan offered to hand bin Laden over to the United States. The Commission has found no credible evidence that this was so. Ambassador Carney had instructions only to push the Sudanese to expel bin Laden. Ambassador Carney had no legal basis to ask for more from the Sudanese, since, at the time, there is no indictment outstanding. The chief of the bin Laden station, whom we will call Mike, saw bin Laden's move to Afghanistan as a stroke of luck. Though the CIA had virtually abandoned Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal, case officers had re-established old contacts while tracking down Mir Amal Khanzi, the Pakistani gunman who had murdered two CIA employees in January 1993. These contacts contributed to intelligence about bin Laden's local movements, business activities, and security and living arrangements and helped provide evidence that he was spending large amounts of money to help the Taliban. The chief of the counter-terrorist center, whom we will call Jeff, told Director George Tennant that the CIA's intelligence assets were, quote, near to providing real-time information about bin Laden's activities and travels in Afghanistan, unquote. One of the contacts was a group associated with particular tribes among Afghanistan's ethnic Pashtun community. By the fall of 1997, the bin Laden unit had roughed out a plan for these Afghan tribals to capture bin Laden and hand him over for trial either in the United States or in an Arab country. In early 1998, the Cabinet-Level Principles Committee apparently gave the concept its blessing.
on their own separate track, getting information, but not direction, from the CIA, the FBI's New York field office and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York were preparing to ask a grand jury to indict bin Laden. The counter-terrorist center knew that this was happening. The eventual charge, conspiring to attack U.S. defense installations, was finally issued from the grand jury in, in June 1998 as a sealed indictment. The indictment was publicly disclosed in November of that year. When bin Laden moved to Afghanistan in May 1996, he became a subject of interest to the State Department's South Asia Bureau. At the time, as one diplomat told us, South Asia was seen in the department and the government generally as a low priority. In 1997, as Madeleine Albright was beginning her tenure as Secretary of State, an NSC policy review concluded that the United States should pay more attention not just to India, but also to Pakistan and Afghanistan. With regard to Afghanistan, another diplomat said the United States at the time had, quote, no policy, unquote. In the State Department, concerns about India-Pakistan tensions often crowded out attention to Afghanistan or bin Laden. Aware of instability and growing Islamic extremism in Pakistan, State Department officials worried most about an arms race and possible war between Pakistan and India. After May 1998, when both countries surprised the United States by testing nuclear weapons, these dangers became daily first-order concerns of the State Department. In Afghanistan, the State Department tried to end the civil war that had been continued since the Soviets' withdrawal. The South Asia Bureau believed that it might have a carrot for Afghanistan's warring factions in a project by the Union Oil Company of California, UNOCAL, to build a pipeline across the country. While there was probably never much chance of the pipeline actually being built, the Afghan desk hoped that the prospect of shared pipeline bent profits might lure faction leaders to a conference table. U.S. diplomats did not favor the Taliban over rival factions. Despite growing concerns, U.S. diplomats were willing at the time, as one official said, to, quote, give the Taliban a chance, unquote. The Secretary Albright made no secret of thinking the Taliban, quote, unquote, despicable. The U.S. ambassador to the United States, Bill Richardson, led a delegation to South Asia, including Afghanistan, in April 1998. No U.S. official of such rank had been to Kabul in decades. Ambassador Richardson went primarily to urge negotiations to end the civil war. In view of bin Laden's recent public call for all Muslims to kill Americans, Richardson asked the Taliban to expel bin Laden. They answered that they did not know his whereabouts. In any case, the Taliban said bin Laden was not a threat to the United States. In sum, in late 1997 and the spring of 1998, the lead U.S. agencies each pursued their own efforts against bin Laden. CIA's counter-terrorist center was developing a plan to capture and remove him from Afghanistan. Parts of the Justice Department were moving towards indicting bin Laden, making possible a criminal trial in the New York Air Court. Meanwhile, the State Department was focused more on lessening Indo-Pakistani nuclear tensions, ending the Afghan Civil War, and ameliorating the Taliban's human rights abuses, than on driving out bin Laden. Another key actor, Marine General Anthony Zini, the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Central Command, shared the State Department's view.
The CIA develops a capture plan. Initially, the DCI's counter-terrorist center and its bin Laden unit considered a plan to ambush bin Laden when he traveled between Kandahar, the Taliban capital where he sometimes stayed the night, and his primary residence at the time, Tarnak Farms. After the Afghan tribals reported that they had tried such an ambush and failed, the center gave up on it, despite suspicious suspicions that the tribal story might be fiction. Thereafter, the capture plan focused on a nighttime raid on Tarnak Farms. A compound of about 80 concrete or mud brick buildings, surrounded by a 10-foot wall, Tarnak Farms was located in an isolated desert area on the outskirts of the Kandahar Airport. CIA officials were able to map the entire site, identifying the houses that belonged to bin Laden's wives and the one where bin Laden himself was most likely to sleep. Working with the tribals, they drew up plans for the raid. They ran two complete rehearsals in the United States during the fall of 1997. By early 1998, planners at the Counter-Terrorist Center were ready to come back to the White House to seek formal approval. Tennant apparently walked National Security Advisor Sandy Berger through the basic plan on February 13th. One group of tribals would subdue the guards, enter Tarnak Farm stealthily, grab Bin Laden, take him to a desert site outside Kandahar, and turn him over to a second group. This second group of tribals would take him to a desert landing zone where already tested in the 1997 Conde capture. From there, a CIA plane would take him to New York, an Arab capital, or wherever he was to be arraigned. Briefing papers prepared by the Counter-Terrorist Center acknowledged that hitches might develop. People might be killed and Bin Laden supporters might retaliate, perhaps taking U.S. citizens and Kandahar hostage. But their briefing papers also noted that there was a risk in not acting. Quote, sooner or later, unquote, they said, quote, Bin Laden will attack U.S. interests, perhaps using WMD, weapons of mass destruction, unquote. Clark's counterterrorism security group reviewed the capture plan for Berger, noting that the plan was in a, quote, very early stage of development, unquote. The NSC staff then told the CIA planners to go ahead and, among other things, start drafting any legal documents that might be required to authorize the covert action. The CSG apparently stressed that the raid should target Bin Laden himself, not the whole compound. The CIA planners conducted their third complete rehearsal in March, and they again briefed the CSG. Clark wrote Berger on March 7th that he saw the operation as, quote, somewhat embryonic, unquote, and the CIA as, quote, months away from doing anything, unquote. Mike thought the capture plan was, quote, the perfect operation, unquote. It required minimum infrastructure. The plan had now been modified so that the tribals would keep Bin Laden in a hiding place for up to a month before turning him over to the United States, thereby increasing the chances of keeping the U.S. hand out of sight. Mike trusted the information from the Afghan network. It had been corroborated by other means, he told us. The lead CIA officer in the field, Gary Schroen, also had confidence in the tribals. In a May 6 cable to CIA headquarters, he pronounced their planning, quote, almost as professional and detailed as would be done by any U.S. military special operations element, unquote. He and the other officers who had worked through the plan with the tribals judged it, quote, about as good as it can be, unquote. 
By that, Schron explained, he meant that the chance of capturing or killing bin Laden was about 40%. Although the tribals thought they could pull off the raid if the operation were approved by headquarters and the policymakers, Schron wrote that there was going to be a point when, quote, we step back and keep our fingers crossed that the tribals prove as good and as lucky as they think they will be, unquote. Military officers reviewed the capture plan and, according to Mike, quote, found no showstoppers, unquote. The commander of Delta Force felt, quote-unquote, uncomfortable with having the tribals hold bin Laden captive for so long, and the commander of Joint Special Operations Forces, Lieutenant General Michael Canavan, was worried about the safety of the tribals inside Tarnak Farms. General Canavan said he had actually thought the operation too complicated for the CIA, quote, out of their league, unquote, in an effort to get results, quote, on the cheap, unquote. But a senior joint staff officer described the plan as, quote, generally not too much different than we might have come up with ourselves, unquote. No one in the Pentagon, so far as we know, advised the CIA or the White House not to proceed. In Washington, Berger expressed doubt about the dependability of the tribals. In his meeting with Tenet, Berger focused most, however, on the question of what was to be done with bin Laden, if he were actually captured. He worried that the hard evidence against bin Laden was still skimpy, and that there was a danger of snatching him and bringing him to the United States, only to see him acquitted. On May 18th, CIA's managers reviewed a draft of Memorandum of Notification, MON, a legal document authorizing the capture operation. A 1986 presidential finding had authorized worldwide covert action against terrorism, and probably provided adequate authority. But mindful of the old, quote-unquote, rogue elephant charge, senior CIA managers may have wanted something on paper to show that they were not acting on their own. Discussion of this memorandum brought to the service an unease about paramilitary covert action that had become ingrained at least among some CIA senior managers. James Pavitt, the assistant head of the Directorate of Operations, expressed concern that people might get killed. It appears he thought the operation had at least a slight flavor of a plan for assassination. Moreover, he calculated that it would cost several million dollars. He was not prepared to take that money, quote, out of hide, unquote, and he did not want to go to all the necessary congressional committees to get special money. Despite Pavitt's misgivings, the CIA leadership cleared the draft memorandum and sent it to the National Security Council. Counter-terrorist center officers briefed Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Directorate Louis Free, telling them that the operation had about a 30% chance of success. The center's chief, Jeff, joined John O'Neill, the head of the FBI's New York field office, in briefing Mary Jo White the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, and her staff. Though Jeff also used the 30% success figure, he warned that someone would surely be killed in the operation. White's impression from the New York briefing was that the chances of capturing bin Laden alive were nil. From May 20 to 24, the CIA ran a final graded rehearsal of the operation, spread over three time zones, even bringing in personnel from the region. The FBI also participated. The rehearsal went well. The counter-terrorist center planned to brief cabinet-level principals and their deputies the following week, giving June 23 as the date for the raid, 
with bin Laden to be brought out of Afghanistan no later than July 23. On May 20th, Director Tenet discussed the high risk of the operation with Berger and his deputies, warning that people might be killed, including bin Laden. Success was to be defined in as the exfiltration of bin Laden out of Afghanistan. A meeting of principals was scheduled for May 29 to decide whether the operation should go ahead. The principals did not meet. On May 29, Jeff informed Mike that he had just met with Tenet, Pavitt, and the chief of the directorate's Near Eastern Division. The decision was made not to go ahead with the operation. Mike cabled the field that he had been directed to, quote, stand down on the operation for the time being, unquote. He had been told, he wrote, that the cabinet-level officials thought the risk of civilian casualties, quote, collateral damage, unquote, was too high. They were concerned about the tribal safety and had worried that, quote, the purpose and nature of the operation would be subject to unavoidable misinterpretation and misrepresentation and probably recriminations in the event that bin Laden, despite our best intentions and efforts, did not survive, unquote. Impressions vary as to who actually decided not to proceed with the operation. Clark told us that the SCG saw the plan as flawed. He was said to have described it to a colleague on the NSC staff as quote-unquote half-assed, and predicted that the principals would not approve it. Jeff thought the decision had been made at the cabinet level. Pavitt thought that it was Berger's doing, though perhaps on Tenet's advice. Tenet told us that given the recommendation of his chief operations officers, he alone had decided to, quote-unquote, turn off the operation. He had simply informed Berger, who had not pushed back. Berger's recollection was similar. He said the plan was never presented to the White House for decision. The CIA's management clearly did not think the plan would work. Tenet's deputy director of operations wrote to Berger a few weeks later that the CIA assessed the tribal's ability to capture bin Laden and deliver him to U.S. officials as low but working-level CIA officers were disappointed. Before it was cancelled, Schron described it as the, quote, best plan we are going to come up with to capture bin Laden while he's in Afghanistan and bring him to justice, unquote. No capture plan before 9-11 ever again attained the same level of detail and preparation. The tribal's reported readiness to act diminished, and bin Laden's security precautions and defenses became more elaborate and formidable. At this time, 9-11 was more than three years away. It was the duty of Tenet and the CIA leadership to balance the risks of inaction against jeopardizing the lives of their operatives and agents. And they had reason to worry about failure. Millions of dollars down the drain. A shootout that could be seen as an assassination. And, if there were repercussions in Pakistan, perhaps a coup. The decisions of the U.S. government in May 1998 were made, as Berger has put it, from the vantage point of the driver looking through a muddy windshield, moving forward, not through a clear rearview mirror. Looking for other options. The counter-terrorist center continued to track bin Laden and to contemplate covert action. The most hopeful possibility seemed now to lie in diplomacy, but not diplomacy managed by the Department of State, which focused primarily on Indo-Pakistani nuclear tensions during the summer of 1998. The CIA learned in the spring of 1998 that the Saudi government had quietly disrupted bin Laden's cells in his country that were planning to attack U.S. forces with shoulder-fired missiles. They had arrested scores of individuals with no publicity. When thanking the Saudis, 
Director Tennant took advantage of the opening to ask them to help against bin Laden. The response was encouraging enough that President Clinton made Tennant his informal personal representative to work for the Saudis on terrorism, and Tennant visited the Riyadh in May and again in early June. Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah, who had taken charge from the ailing King Fahd, promised Tennant an all-out secret effort to persuade the Taliban to expel bin Laden, so that he could be sent to the United States, or to another country for trial. The kingdom's emissary would be its intelligence chief, Prince Turki bin Fazl. Vice President Al Gore later added his thanks to those of Tennant, both making clear that they spoke with President Clinton's blessings. Tennant reported that it was imperative to get an indictment against bin Laden. The New York Grand Jury issued its sealed indictment a few days later, on June 10th. Tennant also recommended that no action be taken on other U.S. options, such as the Covert Action Plan. Prince Turkey followed up in meetings during the summer with Mullah Omar and other Taliban leaders. Apparently, employing a mixture of possible incentives and threats, Turkey received a commitment that bin Laden would be expelled, but Mullah Omar did not make good on this promise. On August 5th, Clark chaired a CSG meeting on bin Laden. In the discussion of what might be done, the note-taker wrote, quote, There was a dearth of bright ideas around the table, despite a consensus that the government ought to pursue every avenue that it can address the problem, unquote. End of chapter 4.1